take a Bible and let's open it together. 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible today, we've got one on the back of the seat there in front of you that you can borrow. We're going to be on page 220 of our copy of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 8 in your copy of the Bible. You know, in their well-known pop song, Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel sing the sad lament, Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Well, according to published reports, I'm sad to say that the uh, legendary Yankee slugger is quite ill. But you know, Joe DiMaggio wasn't quite ill some 58 years ago in the summer of 1941 because it was during that summer that Joe did something no other major league ball player had ever done before or has ever done since. And that is, Joe DiMaggio had at least one base hit in 56 straight ball games. A, a feat so amazing that even today it's simply referred to still as just the streak. Now, the world of sports has seen a few other streaks like this over the years. In 1988, Oral Hershiser pitched 59 consecutive scoreless innings. And of course, we all know about Cal Ripken and his 2,400 consecutive games played. In 19, between the years of 1960 and 1973, Margaret Court won the Australian Open Women's Singles title 11 times in 13 years, if you can believe that. But maybe the greatest streak of all times, winning streak, would have to be in 1945 when golfer Byron Nelson won 18 PGA tournaments in one year, including an unbelievable 11 tournaments in a row in 1945. You say, well, Lon, this is wonderful trivia, and God bless you, but what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is we're talking about winning streaks, and we're about to see David go on a winning streak, go on a roll that you would not believe. What we want to look and see is how David handled the enormous success that God's about to give him here in such a way that he didn't become a casualty of his own success. So that's what we want to talk about because these same principles work here in the 20th century. So let's look together. 2 Samuel chapter 8, a little bit of background. Remember in chapter 7 that God makes a special covenant with David called the Davidic covenant. Now the most outstanding provision of this covenant was that God had promised David the Messiah was going to be a descendant directly of his. But there were some other promises God made and I want you to see one of them. Flip back to chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 10, God says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I, I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. The end of verse 11. And I will also give you rest over all your enemies, God says to David. Now, part of this covenant with, that God made with David is that God would give David victory over all the surrounding peoples who had been harassing Israel and threatening Israel for centuries. And right here in chapter 8, we're going to watch God do that. So let's look together, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, And in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. The Philistines were extremely militaristic people who lived in what we know today as the Gaza Strip, south of Israel, along the Mediterranean coast. The Philistines, you know if you read the Bible, had plagued the Israelites since the days of Joshua, 300 years before. For the first time in 300 years, some Israelite ruler brings them to their knees. Now, I've got a map that I want to show you, and you folks ought to be able to see it on the monitors here. But uh, here we go. This is the Mediterranean Sea right here. Here's the modern-day state of Israel. And going around, Lebanon, 
Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And here's the Gulf of Aqaba, the, the Red Sea, the bottom of Israel. Now, the Philistines lived here, right along the Mediterranean Sea, just south of Israel. And this was the country that David began by conquering there. Verse 2. And then it says David defeated the Moabites. So the Moabites, the end of the verse, became subject to David and they brought tribute. The Moabites lived just east of the Jordan River, right here in what we know of as the modern day country of Jordan. And uh, David brought them under the, his control. Then skip down to verse 3. Moreover, David fought Hadad-Ezer, the king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. Now, Zobah was way up here in the modern-day country of Iraq, uh, right along the Euphrates River. There were two sources of Syrian power. This is in the modern-day country of Syria and Iraq. One was here in Damascus. One was here at Zobah. David went up and defeated the king of Zobah. And then verse 5 says that when the Arameans in Damascus came to help the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. And he put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus. And the Arameans became subject to David and brought him tribute. So again, this is Damascus up in here. And all of this area David captured next. Now the next thing that happened was in verse 9. When two, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of the Syrians, he sent his son to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory. And his son also brought with him silver and gold and bronze. Hamath is way up in the north in modern-day Turkey, the southern part of modern-day Turkey, above Lebanon and Syria. It was part of the old Hittite empire. And the king of Hamath said, hey, wait a minute, I don't want any part of David. You understand? So rather than fight David, he offered himself voluntarily as a vassal to David, and David accepted that. Finally, or, or next to finally, verse 12, the Bible says that he defeated the Ammonites. The Ammonites lived in this area right here in southern Jordan. They had refused, Numbers chapter 21, to let the Israelites pass through when Moses was leading them on their way to the promised land. They had been plaguing the Israelites ever since, and David schwacked these guys too. And finally, verse 11, uh, it says that David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. Verse 12, he put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Edomites lived in this area, east of the River Jordan, down south, in southern Jordan and modern uh, Saudi Arabia, northern Saudi Arabia. And so David, the Bible says, put garrisons there to protect his southern flank. So by the time the chapter ends now, David has captured everything symbolized by this uh, heavy, bold line and has a kingdom that stretches all the way in the south from the Gulf of Aqaba and the Sinai all the way into the north to the Euphrates River over into the modern-day countries of Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and up into Turkey. God has effectively neutralized every hostile power around Israel just the way He promised He was going to do. And in the process, He's made David the most famous and the most feared leader of his day. Leon Wood, writing in the book A Survey of Israel History, said this, and I quote, He said, David's authority now extended from the Gulf of Aqaba in the south all the way to the Euphrates River in the north. This empire encompassed the land that God had promised to Abraham centuries before in Genesis 15. David's empire did not rival those of Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon at the height of those nations' power. But there is no doubt that David was the strongest and most powerful ruler alive in his day. End of quote.
David was a big smoke. David was on a roll. I mean, David was just unbelievably successful in taking all of this land. Now, that brings us to the end of the chapter, but leaves us with the really important question. And we need you all to lead. You're the choir. We need you to lead these folks. What's the most important question? One, two, three. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. So what? You say, Lon, I'm happy for David. I think it's great that he got a big empire, but that big whoop, I mean, that doesn't make one bit of difference in my life in the 20th century. What difference does that make? Well, I think it does, because David had to handle all this success properly, and that's what we want to talk about. You know, uh, I've got my Valentine's Day tie on. I don't know if you saw this. My wife gave it to me. It's got little hearts on it, and um, if I knew what was good for me, I'd wear it. So I got it on, but this is Valentine's Day weekend. You all know that. And, and so this, I, this radio station this week I heard was holding a little survey where you call in and you tell them the most romantic movie of all times. So I was going to call in and give them my choice, but then I didn't because I figured mine would never win. You know what I, my mind was? Top Gun. No, really, Top Gun is very romantic. I mean, don't you think, I mean, there's a lot of romance in Top Gun, but I never called in because I didn't think it would win. Well, I've got some favorite movies. You probably do, too. Top Gun is one of mine. Another one of my favorite movies is a movie called The Cincinnati Kid. It's an older movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but it stars Steve McQueen as a young card-playing uh, gambler, poker player, The Cincinnati Kid. And uh, this guy goes on an incredible winning streak. His confidence begins to really ride high. And he decides that he's now ready to take on the man. And the man was played by Edward G. Robinson, wonderful actor. All his friends warn Steve McQueen he's not ready for it, that his ego's writing checks, his poker ability can't cash. But he's not interested in hearing that. He's going to take on the man. So he gets into a one-on-one, head-on game with Edward G. Robinson. And Edward G. Robinson cleans his clock dry, crushes him. And when it's all over and Steve McQueen stands to go, Edward G. Robinson said to him, as only Edward G. Robinson could, he said, you're good, kid. You're good. He said, but you're not good enough yet. And that's how the movie ends. Now, I always try to figure out what the moral of a movie is, what the message of a movie is. And it seems to me the message of this movie is that success is wonderful, but it's also dangerous. Because success, if we're not careful, can inflate our opinion of ourselves and puff us up beyond all reasonableness and lead us to making some disastrous decisions the way Steve McQueen did. I've learned in my years of ministry and in my 50 years of living that success is far more dangerous to our spiritual well-being than failure is. I've met so many Christians in the ditch, not because they began to experience too much failure, but began to, they began to experience too much success and they didn't know how to handle it. And when you don't know how to handle success, it's dangerous. You say, well, Lon, listen, you're talking to the wrong crowd. You know what I mean? You should be talking to Bill Gates. You should be talking to Donald Trump. You should be talking to Michelle Kwan. You shouldn't be talking to us. We are mad. What kind of successes are we? Well, now, wait a minute. I believe virtually everybody here has had some measure of success in their life that God's given you. Maybe you've had success in your business. Maybe you've had success in education. You've gone to school. You've done well. You've earned degrees. Maybe you've had some success in athletics along the way. Or in some ministry you did. I mean, you started teaching a Bible study or whatever, and it really went well. Maybe you've had success with raising your children. Maybe you've got wonderful children, and God has given you wonderful success raising them. And you're very proud of what your children turned out to be. Or maybe 
maybe in school. You know, maybe you're a class officer or the president of some club or you're on a ball team and people know who you are. You know, friends, it does not take a lot of success to be dangerous. It's amazing how little success it takes for it to really make us uh, exposed to tremendous danger. And, and David understood that. And just like David, we need to be careful we handle whatever success God gives us in a way that we don't end up becoming casualties of our success. So let's look and see what did David do. It's all right here in this chapter. There are three things David did in this chapter to insulate himself and protect himself from ending up as a casualty of his own success. And I want to share that with you. Number one, principle number one, is that in spite of his success, David kept his trust in the right place. Look at verse 4. It says in verse 4 that after David had captured the Arameans, that he captured a thousand chariots, and at the end of the verse it says, and he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Now, do we understand what David did here? Uh, You know, chariots were like the tanks of the ancient Near East. And having a thousand chariots, friends, was like having a thousand panzers that you could put on the field and just sweep an enemy right off a battlefield. But look what David did. The Bible says he hamstrung all but a hundred of the horses, meaning he cut the hamstring on the horse's legs, effectively making them disabled to ever be used on the battlefield, crippling them. And so he he only left 50 of a thousand chariots operational. Now, why would he do this? David was a military man. He certainly understood the huge tactical advantage it would give him to have a thousand chariots on the field. Why in the world would he disable 950 of them? Well, the answer is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 17, God gives his, his advice, His regulations to kings. And here's one of the things He says to the king of Israel, whoever it might be at any given time. He says in Deuteronomy 17, the king shall not multiply horses for himself. Why? Well, because if you begin multiplying horses and chariots, it would become very easy for the king to begin depending on the horses, depending on the chariots, placing his confidence and his trust in his military might instead of placing his confidence totally and utterly in the living God. I mean, David beat the Syrians without the thousand chariots. God gave him the victory without the chariots. What do you need the chariots for? And David wanted to make sure that this, this misplacing of his trust didn't happen. He wanted to make sure that in spite of his enormous success, his trust stayed in the right place on the living God plus nothing. That's why he wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, David not only wrote that, but David took some radical steps right here in this chapter, to make sure that his success didn't cause him to stop living it. When I was a brand new Christian, uh, 21 years old, I came to the Washington area, and I've only been a Christian about six months, and I began living at the Good News Mission in Arlington. It's a mission that places uh, chaplains in local jails. And there was a wonderful lady there. Her name was Millie Barnes. She was about 60 at the time. And every time she and I struck up a friendship, and every time I would ask her a question about, is she going here, is she doing that, she would always say, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. Well, after a while, she started driving me crazy, you know. And and I said to her one time, well, why don't you just say yes or no? Why is it always Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing? She said, honey, you haven't read the whole Bible yet, have you? 
I said, well, no. She said, have you read James chapter 4? I said, well, no. She said, all right, here's what I want you to do. And she gave me these verses to go read. Now, you don't need to turn, but listen. I went back to my room, and here's what I read. Now, listen, writes James, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a day there and carry on business and make money, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life anyway? You're like a mist, a vapor that appears for a little while and then you're gone, you vanish. Instead, James writes, you ought to say, if the Lord's willing, we will live and do this and do that. And I came back to her after reading that and I said, wow, that's pretty cool, pretty cool verses there. And she said, Lon, I want you to understand that when I condition everything I say with Lord willing, what I'm really trying to say to you is that my trust is not in me, not in my plans, not in my own strength, but my trust is in the living God for everything he does in my life. And she said to me, honey, you know, you hate it when they call you honey. She said to me, honey, she said, I want to tell you something. No matter how far you go or how high God may take you, she said, don't you ever, don't you ever abandon Lord willing as the motto for your life. Now, that conversation was almost 30 years ago. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. And now I drive my family crazy because every time they ask me something, I go, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. But you see, this was good advice for me, and it's good advice for you, friends. As God takes us up the ladder in life, it's so easy after a while to begin relying on, on the money and the influence and the contacts and the position and the portfolio that comes from our success and instead of maintaining that simple childlike confidence and trust in God Himself. But the Bible, as I read it, never tells us to look at life and say, money willing, Contacts willing, influence willing, stock market willing. No, the Bible teaches us to say what? Lord willing. Because God wants us to have all of our hope and all of our trust centered in Him, not in all this other stuff that may accumulate because of our success. And a wise person is a person who never lets success, no matter how much of it they may achieve, alter where they put their trust. David kept his trust in the right place that's why he hamstrung those horses. Number two, the next thing he did is in spite of his success, David, David gave the glory to the right place, the credit to the right place. Look with me if you would at verse 7. And David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadad Ezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem. The end of verse 10. And the son of the king of Hamath brought David silver and gold and bronze, verse 11, and David dedicated these articles to the Lord just as he had done with all the articles of silver and gold that he had captured from all the other nations that he took over, David gave all of this away. Now, it's important for you to understand that in the ancient Near East, it was both customary and expected that a king uh, uh, will keep all of the spoils that he captures in war. He keeps the booty. That's how kings piled up the huge fortunes they did by the spoils of war. But David didn't do that. Instead, he dedicated it all to the Lord. You say, well, where did it go? Well, if you remember 1 Chronicles 22, when Solomon's about ready to build the temple, David says to him, he says, Now, David, I have stockpiled 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and quantities of bronze and iron too great to even be weighed. I'll tell you where all that wealth went. It all went into savings, into escrow, for the time the temple would be built. 
and the incredible wealth that went into building Solomon's temple. You know where it came from? It didn't come from Solomon. It came from his father David, who took all of the spoil, all of the booty, and instead of keeping it for himself, he dedicated it to the Lord. And that's what, uh, that, that's what Solomon used to build the temple with. So why did David do this? Why didn't he keep some of it? Well, because, friends, he knew where the credit for his victories belonged. He knew that he hadn't given himself all these victories. God had. Look what it says right here in verse 6. It says in the end of verse 6 that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David didn't give it to himself. And David knew as a result of that the victory, the credit... And the spoil all belonged to the Lord. And by giving his treasure away, uh, he was publicly declaring for himself and for all the people of Israel that the credit for his success did not belong to him and he was not going to accept it. He was giving it to God. I was down at the National Prayer Breakfast uh, this past week. And or last week, whenever. And uh, I heard Dr. Laura get up and read the Old Testament reading. And she read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I was sitting there listening and I thought... Wow, this is exactly what I'm going to try to say to the people at McLean Bible Church next week. So let me, let me let you hear what she read and see if you don't think it fits. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he says this. He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing with valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you, where you will lack nothing. So when you have eaten, Moses says, and you're satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, that you do not become proud in your heart. And that you do not say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. No, Moses says, remember that the Lord your God is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Don't forget the Lord your God. And isn't this, isn't this the classic formula, friends? God gives us success. The success goes to our head. We forget the Lord who gave us the success. We begin to believe our own PR. We begin to believe it was my ability and the strength of my hand that did this. See, David realized this tendency lived in him, and just like it lives in us. But he fought it by refusing deliberately to accept the credit for his success, letting all of that credit bounce right off him and keep going to God, keep going to God. Friends, that's what a wise person does. The credit, I don't care how far God may take you or me, the credit doesn't belong to you or me. It belongs to him. Don't take it. Keep the glory in the right place. Third and finally, in spite of his success... David kept himself, third of all, under the right authority, under God's authority. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, and David became famous. Does that surprise you that David became famous? David became incredibly famous. I mean, he was the most powerful man in the ancient Near East at this time. I mean, Barbara Walters would have interviewed him if he was there. God help him. And, um, but anyway, then verse 15, but it says, But David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and what was right for all his people. Whoa, would that be refreshing here in Washington? Huh? To have somebody doing what was just and right for us, for all the people? This is what David did. And, and what verse 15 tells us, friends, is that in spite of his newfound fame, David had not allowed this to go to his head. He had not allowed it to convince him that he was now the center of the universe. Oh, no. 
David stayed under the authority of God because God is the center of the universe, not David. And God had told the king in the Bible, listen, he had said, listen to the word of the Lord, O king. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Do not wrong, do no wrong to the fatherless or the widow or the alien or the helpless. Do not rule over your people ruthlessly or unrighteously, but fear the Lord. Stay under the authority of God. And verse 15 tells us that David, in obedience to God, used his fame, used his power, used his position not to gratify his own puffed up ego, but instead he used it to serve his people with integrity and righteousness and authenticity because David's ego was under control. He did not see himself as the center of the universe. He saw God as the center of the universe and he was under God and going to do what God told him. Now, I, I, I love, I don't know what you, I love, I have some favorite foods, and one of the foods I love is Hebrew National Hot Dogs. You love Hebrew National Hot Dogs? Well, you should. They're really good. And I'll tell you why I love them. I love them, first of all, because they're wonderful. And I love them, second of all, and I buy them because you've got to support the family businesses. You understand what I'm saying? So I buy Hebrew National Hot Dogs. Well, anyway, do you remember this old commercial used to be on for Hebrew National Hot Dog with the guy in the Uncle Sam suit? You remember this? And he's holding up the Hebrew National Hot Dog, and he says what? The government says we can use meat filler. We can't. The government says we can use artificial ingredients. We can't. The government says four or five other things they can use, the answer to all of which is we can't. We're kosher, and we're subject to a higher authority. That's a great commercial. I, I got to admit, that's a great commercial. But you know what? It's more than just a commercial. What you're hearing there is a worldview. A worldview that says it doesn't matter how much success we might be able to achieve by disobeying God, we're not going to do it. And it doesn't matter how much success we've achieved to this point, we're not going to let it go to our head and forget that we are subject to a higher authority. We are not an authority unto ourselves. Now, David had decided to be a Hebrew national hot dog. David had decided to remain subject to a higher authority. And may I say to you, no matter where God may take you, God wants you to be a Hebrew national hot dog. And me. He wants us to understand we are subject to a higher authority. We always will be. No matter how much success God may grant us, we are to remain under the authority of God, under the authority of His Word, and we are to do things the way God tells us to do them, not the way we feel like doing them. David understood that. May I say uh, for just a moment that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that this is one of the major bridges a person has to cross to get there. One of the key issues you've got to deal with is who, who is the authority in your life. At 20 years old, I'll tell you, I turned around as a college student in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I looked at my life real hard and I said, you know what, I need somebody else to run my life. I have run my life for the first 20 years and I have totally screwed my life up. And if I were to start over, I don't think I could do any better because I did the, first, the best I knew how the first time. I can't get me to where I want to go. To having the kind of rich and rewarding and fulfilling life that I want to have, I can't get myself there. I need somebody else to run my life. I came to know Jesus Christ just a few months later. But it was because I crossed that bridge. Because when Jesus comes into your life, friend, He doesn't just come in to give you eternal life. He comes in to be the new authority in your life. And so one of the key uh, issues that you and I have to deal with when we're coming to Christ is we've got to be willing to move over in the passenger seat and let Jesus 
have the steering wheel. And He'll take your life as He's done with mine. He'll make your life more than anything you ever dreamed it would be. You'll never regret that decision. But you know, you can't invite Jesus in your life and ask Him to ride in the passenger seat. Doesn't work. He doesn't, he, those are not the terms. He comes in only as the driver. And um, if you're here and you're thinking about that, I just want to make sure you understand what the issues are. Maybe you've been driving your life for 20 or 30 or 40 years and you've completely made a wreck out of it. You know what? The healthiest thing you could ever do is admit that. Admit that you need somebody else to drive. And then let Jesus become your designated driver for the rest of your life. Be the best decision you ever made. Well, let's summarize. What have we seen? Well, the way to handle success so we don't become casualties of our success is, number one, keep our trust in the right place. Don't begin trusting all the stuff that your success piles up. You keep your trust in Jesus Christ. Number two, keep the glory, the credit going to the right place. That's to the Lord and not you. And third and finally, keep yourself under the authority of God. You are not the new center of the universe, no matter how much success you've had, and you're never going to be the center of the universe. Don't kid yourself. You say, well, Lon, I only got one more question. Well, ask it quick. Here's my question. How do you do this? I mean, arrogance and pride is so, it's so subtle, selfish pride. I mean, it just creeps in your life before you even know it's in there. How do you keep your feet planted on solid ground? How do you keep your bubble from getting too big? Well, let me answer the question by showing you how David did. Deuteronomy 17, if you turn there real quickly, we'll be done with this. Deuteronomy 17, here is that passage where God is giving kings his instruction. And I want you to see what he says. Deuteronomy 17, it's page 138, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Look at verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. It says, when a king takes over the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, a copy of the Bible. And then verse 19, it is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God. And that he may learn to follow carefully all the words of this law. And verse 20, that he may learn not to consider himself better than his brothers and sisters. Not to get puffed up, not to get arrogant, and then to depart from the law to the left or to the right. Friends, what the Bible is telling us is how do we keep success from distorting our lives? We do it by staying vitally connected to the Word of God. Saturating our life with the Word of God. And as we do, God uses the Scripture in our life to trim our ego and to deflate our own PR and to defend our lives against arrogance. Friends, the best way to keep your success in perspective is to keep yourself in the Word of God. And, and, and I, the Bible is the best bubble popper I know. I mean, you get those bubbles of your own PR and the Bible just goes poop, 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 poop and brings you right back down. Because when you see who God is and you see who you are, and that's what the Bible's all about, friend, there's nothing to be arrogant about. Trust me. There's nothing to be arrogant about. The people who are the most dangerous are the people who enjoy a lot of success and don't temper it with a, a saturating of their lives with the Word of God. Those are the most dangerous people I've ever met. And usually, they end up in the ditch as casualties of that success. Don't you be like that. God doesn't want you to be like that. It's wonderful to have success, but you've got to handle it right. May God help us do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for talking to us today about some real practical things. Down right on the earth where we live. And Lord Jesus, virtually everybody here has had enough success 
to begin to feel that little bit of selfish pride, that little bit of arrogance, that little bit of their own PR going to their head. We all know what that feels like. And it's dangerous. So, Lord Jesus, use the Word of God today to help us insulate and protect our lives against becoming casualties of our own success. Lord, if there are any of us here today who need a course correction in these areas, give us the courage to ask for your help in making. And Lord Jesus, keep us humble, men and women of God, before you. Help us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, as the Bible says, but help us to think sober judgment. And as we try to stay humble, even in spite of success, Lord, thank you that those are the people you promised to continue blessing and rewarding. May we be such people. May you change our life by what we heard here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.